Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, good morning. Uh, I had to catch my breath after that. That was such an amazing piece, but it is a privilege to be with you this morning. I'm so grateful to Sean for the invitation and for his and Annie's kind introduction. As they said, I serve as Executive Director for Baptist Women in Ministry, um, and our work is to encourage women and to advocate in Baptist congregations and spaces for the full affirmation of women. And so in that work, we are so grateful for congregations like Johns Creek Baptist Church, which has elevated and affirmed the gifts and callings of women for so many years and served as an example for others to do the same. So I express thanks to you on behalf of our community. Would you pray with me? God of grace and God of glory, As we come to you this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts, refresh our souls, challenge our minds, and renew our strength, that we may learn to love you, O Lord, our God, and to love our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if your family is anything like mine, then you probably also know about sacred family customs, those untouchable things that we do as our families, things that we have always done, and you probably are also familiar with the displeasure of the family matriarch when someone challenges the customs, right? Our family customs can take on many different forms. Sometimes they have to do with the holidays, traditions that we have, where we, what we put on top of the tree or when we open the gifts. Sometimes they have to do with more day-to-day things. The, the, if you have kids at home, the bedtime stories or songs or maybe even just not leaving the house without saying, I love you. But for many of us, our family customs tend to revolve around food. Meals and the preparation of meals, am I right? Uh, It's what we have at particular times and specifically how we prepare those dishes. Every family has that recipe that is sacred that you just don't mess with. Well, I'm from Texas, and so one of our sacred family recipes is the guacamole. You don't mess with the guacamole. Our family has this unique recipe. I can't tell you because, you know, all those things. But it it, it has some unique ingredients and elements that go into the guacamole. We've done it this way forever. It's very important to us that it's made this way. And I will never forget the look on my mother's face 
the day that my sister said, well, you know, they have these great pre-packaged guacamole seasoning mixes that if you just put it with the avocados, it tastes great. Her face looked an awful lot like it looked when I suggested that ready-made pie crusts might be just as good as homemade ones. It was not pretty. Our customs are important to us, right? Whether it's about guacamole or something more important like our treasured family traditions, customs matter. They're the way that we've always done things, and we've done them that way for a reason. We do them that way, and we take pride in it. And so in some ways, those, those things that we do begin to shape how we view ourselves. If you do something for long enough, it starts to become ingrained in who you are. It, it, it tends to form the way we, we look at ourselves and the world. It, it becomes a marker of our identity. So you can imagine why people don't respond all that favorably when we challenge the customs. And so this morning, as you're working your way through the book of Acts, We've come to Acts chapter 6 and to the story of Stephen, who is the customs challenger. Uh, you, you may have met Stephen last week in the passage that was read. He was one of the first deacons. When he's introduced, he, it says that he is full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And so now as we come to Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we're going to hear a little bit more of Stephen's story. And so if you're following along, We'll begin in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene, Alexandria, the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people, the elders, the teachers of the law, and then they seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified... This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we reach this point in the book of Acts, the gospel's beginning to spread. It had been spreading through the ministry of the apostles. Specifically, we hear a lot about Peter and John, the, the things that they are doing, and the fact that as their ministry got stronger, Opposition tended to arise. They've been arrested. They have faced all kinds of difficulty. And so now, as Stephen comes along in kind of this second generation, he begins to do similar things. He has great power, great signs and wonders that he is doing. And so as we would expect, 
opposition arises. Now, we had heard back in chapter 5, verse 17, whenever some of that opposition was arising against the apostles, that the opposition was motivated out of jealousy. I think this is really important to note because that kind of jealousy, jealousy because someone else is growing in power, tends to actually be a manifestation of fear that we're going to lose our own power and position. If someone else who is different from us and saying something different, if they grow in power, then that tends to threaten our own sense of power. And so we act out of that fear to do anything we can to maintain the power and position that we have, even if that means making sure others are not empowered. And I think that's what's happening here. Because as we begin to see this opposition to Stephen, it's coming from uh, these diaspora Jewish leaders. We know that they're not from Judea, they're from Asia, they're from Alexandria, Sicilia, these other places. And so because they weren't part of that centralized Judean Jewish leadership, they probably were quasi-outsiders. They probably had a little less power. And so this new person comes along who has power, and you can imagine that they act in order to maintain their own. But they quickly realize they can't do anything about it. The Spirit has given Stephen too much wisdom, and so they've got to come up with a new plan, and they, they decide they're going to go stir up some people among the Jewish leadership the elders and the teachers of the law, they're going to produce these blasphemous sayings that Stephen has been offering, and they're going to bring it all to the Sanhedrin. And then the false witnesses are going to bring these three charges against Stephen. First, they say, Stephen is speaking against the holy place and against the law. Second, Stephen has said that Jesus will destroy the temple. And third, they say that he is challenging the customs, the way that we have always done things. Now remember, these are false witnesses. And so we might look at these charges and think they're probably not true. We can probably refute them. And even though we don't have all of Stephen's messages and everything that he's been saying, we, we get some clues here. So for this first charge, we, we look when Stephen responds to the question, are these charges true? At the very end of his speech, he says that his concern is that people are not keeping the law. And the charge was that he's speaking against the law. So maybe we can say that one's not true. The second one, that, that Jesus is going to destroy the temple, this is actually similar to a false accusation that was made against Jesus himself at his trial. And it was false because the people didn't understand that when Jesus spoke of the temple being destroyed and restored in three days, that he was speaking of his body. So these first two, we, we find some ways that we can refute, though maybe they're rooted in truth, but just they have a little spin on them. But then there's this third charge, challenging the customs. It's a little more broad, a little more difficult to refute. It's basically just like saying he's a religious troublemaker. And so 
this charge comes up and it's, it's particularly poignant to the people because it's poking at something that is central to their identity. You see, this word for customs in the Greek, it's actually ethos, from which we get the English ethos. So in Greek, ethos means long-standing practices or things that have always been done by a particular group. It's literally what we have always done. But then the English word evolves. Ethos tends to mean more the characteristic spirit of a group, a community, a culture, an era that's manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. Even the tie between these two words reveals how important what we have always done is to who we are as a group. So you can imagine why this charge hits a little bit deeper. So the, the, the charges have been brought forth and now Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest himself walks up and says to Stephen, are these charges true? It's a yes or no question. He, he's supposed to answer no if he wants to be vindicated from the charges, right? But you can see how he would be hard-pressed to say no. So in many ways, this is a trap. But Stephen is smarter than being forced into the dichotomy. So when the high priest says, are these charges true, yes or no, Stephen says, let me tell you a story. It's a very Jesus way of doing things. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. He begins this long diatribe of 52 verses where Stephen is going to retell Israelite history from a particular perspective and with a particular intent. And I'm not going to read all the verses to you, but maybe I'll just hit some of the highlights. He talks about Abraham, how Abraham was called by God to start this family and to have this promise of being God's people. He tells of Isaac, Abraham's son, and his grandson Jacob, who becomes the father of the 12 patriarchs, who are the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. But then he tells how the 12 patriarchs began to become jealous of their brother Joseph. Remember, jealousy, fear of power. They become jealous of Joseph, and so they mistreat him, and Joseph still winds up becoming more powerful than they could have ever imagined. Eventually, a Pharaoh comes who's, who knows not Joseph and the, the Israelites are enslaved. And then we hear Stephen tell all about Moses. This Moses that he is apparently speaking against, Stephen's going to spend 28 verses just telling you how great Moses is. He talks about the difficulties that Moses faced in his infancy, how he grew to understand the oppression of his people, how he fought against Pharaoh and led his people faithfully in the wilderness. But Stephen is very astutely mentioning that even when Moses was leading them, the people had this tendency to rebel against his leadership. They had a tendency to resist the prophets. 
Then in the last section about the retelling of Israelite history, uh, Stephen quickly mentions how Joshua makes the way for the tabernacle to enter the promised land, and then David becomes God's favored son who, who asks God to build this house for God, and eventually how Solomon, his son, is able to build the house. But again, Stephen jumps in and mentions, don't forget that the prophets kept telling them that God could not be contained by anything made with human hands. And then Stephen's going to finish up his speech by turning things back around on his questioners. He's going to say, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Stephen says, hey, y'all, the reason I've been telling you this big, long story about what was going on is to say you're just like them, and not like Moses, and not like Joshua, and not like, you're like the people who were opposing them. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. I don't know if Stephen's tactic here is actually the best one if you really want to be vindicated of the charges and turning it back around and kind of yelling at them like this, but he makes this point that anytime God is doing something new among God's people, there is always opposition. The patriarchs opposed Joseph. The Egyptian Hebrews opposed Moses. Those who wanted to to contain God in a box, they opposed the ever-present, infinite Holy Spirit. And Stephen says, even some from among you opposed Jesus himself. Stephen tells them what it looks like when God is doing something new by pointing to the past. It's really a great rhetorical move. He tells them that that all of this dissent around progress, you know, that's actually the way that things have always been. Stephen is preaching about Jesus, this new life-giving way that God is working among them. And so since it is new, by definition, it's going to challenge the way that things have always been. And when something is new... That tends to make people afraid. Afraid that the way that things have always been is changing and being challenged. Afraid that their power and position is somehow being diminished. And so they act out of fear and opposition. And in this case, that opposition winds up costing Stephen his life. Still, though, Stephen's speech here is teaching them. And it's teaching us. It's teaching us that despite our fears that arise when our customs are challenged, when the ways that we have always done things begins to change, Despite our fears, if we look to the past, we will see that how God works among us is rooted in this tension, this tension between change 
and resistance to change. Between fear and jealousy and leaning into the new movement of the Spirit. Between being comfortable with where we are and being willing to move forward into a more faithful fulfillment of God's work in this world. The church today, the 21st century church, the pandemic church, I think we are existing in this tension. We are right in the middle of it. And all around us, fears are arising about potential changes to our customs, to the way that things have always been. And there are even places in the church where if someone even just suggests a change to the customs, that it's viewed as a crime the way Stephen's suggestions were. From my perspective and the work that I do every day, I'm here to tell you that just about every Baptist woman in ministry knows what it feels like to be on the Stephen end of challenging the customs. Because women who feel called to ministry in certain ways we by definition necessarily have to challenge the way that things have always been. And even today, even in some of our more open Baptist congregations, we still face opposition. We're still rejected, pushed aside, not respected, overlooked, discarded, questioned, and sometimes even charges are brought against us simply for our desire to do what God has called us to do. And so the uh, false witnesses, they stand before us and they make these charges. They say they're speaking, they're preaching, goes against the holy place and the law. They say their leadership will destroy the foundations of the church. And by the way, those are two charges that in another setting I would like to give you a detailed refutation of, okay? They're the false witnesses. But then they always get to this third charge, which is they're challenging the customs, the way that things have always been, the ways that were handed down to us. It's a little harder to refute. And so when they stand before us and ask, are these charges true? I think I'm going to pattern my speech after Stevens. And I'm going to say, sisters and brothers, siblings in the family of God, the God of glory not only appeared to Abraham, but also appeared to his wife, Hagar, who named God Elroy, the God who sees me. And, and God also appeared to his other wife, Sarah, and promised her a son. And together, these people moved to the new land to start the new family. 
And while Abraham's son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob, were the children of the promise, promises of of many descendants and a great name and being a blessing to the nations, that promise could not have reached fruition without Rebekah and Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah and especially Tamar, who saved the line of Judah when she refused to be discarded. And when a Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph, recall that it was the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, that saved Moses from being murdered as a baby, that it was his mother, Jochebed, and sister Miriam that fashioned a bed of reed and tar to carry him to his new guardian in the form of Pharaoh's daughter. And because these women saved him, God's plan for the redemption of the Israelites was able to continue Moses was called. Moses saw oppression. And when Moses turned back to go to Egypt in order to confront Pharaoh, it was his wife Zipporah who kept God's plan on track when in the middle of the night Moses' life was threatened and so she quickly arose and circumcised her son and saved Moses from being killed. When they reached the promised land, it was Rahab, a Canaanite woman, who helped them gain a foothold in the promised land. Without Deborah arising from among the judges, would someone have stood up to turn the people back to God and fight off Sisera? And you know, Ruth, she saved the line of Judah again when she approached Boaz to become her husband. She becomes David's great-grandmother, but David's kingdom could not have prospered and grown and been passed on to his son Solomon to build the temple without Michael, Abigail, and Bathsheba. And yet, and yet, hearts are still hardened to not be able to see that the the ministry and leadership of women has been crucial to God's purposes from the beginning. Vital to the ministry of redemption and reconciliation in the past, in the present, and in the future. Friends, God has so much left to do among us. And while our faith is rooted in a long history deep traditions and long-standing customs. The wind that you speak of in this series, the Holy Spirit that was at work in Stephen's ministry, it's still moving among us today. It's still pushing us forward, leading us closer to God, nudging us toward more faithful fulfillment of God's purposes in the world. And so whether it be through more deeply empowering the women in your congregation, whether it be in the the leadership of the staff or in the pulpit or in the the classrooms and the committees, in, in the neighborhood ministries that I've heard of, whether it be more deeply empowering women or whether it be some other customs, that need to be challenged in order for you to be more faithful to God's work. Let us find courage 
to not respond to change in fear. Let us look to the Spirit to show us the past and how God's work is always rooted in change. And let us invite Jesus who brings us the newness of life to walk alongside of us toward a more faithful expression of the church than we could ever even imagine. Would you pray with me? Loving God, your work in this world is so interesting. How you have constantly moved among us, how you are never finished with us. God, we ask that you would show us the ways in which your spirit is nudging us today, but also the ways in which your spirit is nudging the church. Our goal is to be the best followers of Christ that we can be to do what you want us to do in this world. And so, Give us the courage that we would not be afraid of progress, of change, of a new way of being your light in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.